Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and I'm joined by site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as reporters Mason Curran, Trevor Booth, and Jacob Rudner. Guys, how are we doing today? Crowded room, but we're doing all right. <laughs> yeah, doing good, Rob. We're really uh, excited to be doing another podcast with you fellas. I'm excited to see you too, Rob. We got three sports going on, so a lot to talk about. And you know what? I, like Jacob Rudner over here, I heard that he can walk, chew gum, and juggle at the same time I don't so that so. means that he can, that means that he can cover all three sports like he's going to do today right red <laughs> yeah today is today is the first day of, of the three sport day you got football during the pod some basketball availability and straight to the baseball game asu takes on oklahoma state if this counts as covering basketball since i don't think i'll be out at availability then i've done then i could do three sports today too i think um Rod, are you going to wear your hockey mask when you go to bed tonight just so you make it all four? <laughs> yeah, the mask and helmet. Typically sleep and in a, a helmet. Stick. So just add the mask on, then I got the hockey going. It's very safe. Okay, well, uh, we're going to cut off the hockey talk or whatever is going on with, with Rudd in the corner. But uh, ASU basketball, great weekend. They've now won five straight in the Pac-12, six of their last seven games. Wait, uh, what? ASU basketball won five straight in the Pac-12. First road sweep under Bobby Hurley. In his tenure with ASU, wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, are we talking about? Are we supposed to talk about that? Today? We're gonna we're gonna talk okay. about it a little bit today. Uh, I think we can do that. Uh, yeah. But uh, some notes from Doug Tamro, uh, Sun Devil Media Relations, on Remy Martin and his great weekend. Uh, Remy Martin averaged twenty one point nine points over the weekend um, in road games. He's averaging over twenty points per game. Uh, just a really great weekend. Uh, from Remy Martin, he shot over 66% from the field, uh, shot 80% from three over the weekend, made nine of 10 free throws. Uh, and I think, I mean, all of us, I think, we're probably expecting ASU to have some sort of trouble with at least one of these games against Stanford and Cal. They took care of both pretty easily. The end of the Cal game got a little bit hairy, but I think ASU, for the most part, uh, did a pretty good job uh, securing what they were supposed to. So Remy Martin had a pretty good weekend. He did. Yeah. Okay. He was player of the week. What did you guys think? It was his third third player of the week. Second this second year. Second this year. Boom. And he's the leading scorer in the Pac-12 now. That is also correct. Right? Big time. Yep. And this is his second Pac-12 player of the week honor of the year and his third overall. Uh, we talked about before the podcast. Um, so, so, yeah, big weekend for Remy Martin. But I, I think collectively going into this week, this was a time for ASU to pick up the road sweep, the opportunity <laughs> was ahead of itself, especially during the Stanford game, which might have been the more difficult of the two going in because of Oscar Da Silva not being active in that game and the chance that ASU could have you know, to pull off the road sweep. And, and they did, and Remy Martin got hot in that game early. He had the first five points, and that kind of set things up for the rest of the game. Um, Alonzo Verge had another great game. He's been on a tear ever since ASU's really got started on this win streak. And then the Cal game, that, that's the game you got to conclude it. Um, and ASU was able to do so. And I think just collectively, and we'll get more to it in this podcast, I'm sure, but the job that Bobby Hurley has done over this win streak has been really impressive. Um, if you look at the Cal game, Matt Bradley got hot in the second half of that game and started to do some things after he had some foul trouble in the first half. And then Alonzo Verge switched onto him in the second half, sort of gave him a change of pace to throw them off. And then Grant Antisovich got going in the first half and ASU went to a 2-3 zone to kind of push him back out toward the perimeter and keep um, Cal out of the paint and do some things there. So I, I think collectively ASU's finding um, a role w within everyone fulfilling their roles and then also the coaching staff has done a good job too. The verge surge is, is happening right now, right? Yeah. The ASU coaches thought that he was going to be a great player. Uh, I feel like the game has really kind of slowed down for him. Uh, he has a lot more physical composure with a lot of his decisions now. He's finishing. He's making better decisions. You know, not not all of them are great decisions, but the, I see a, a significant uh, uh, growth to what he's doing on the floor. And just to sort of follow up on what Trevor said, which I think is a very imp important, good point. Bobby Hurley has done some of his best coaching at ASU in the last four or five weeks. And um, they've had an excellent game plan going into a lot of these opportunities. If you'll recall, they beat uh, USC because of their full court pressure which started really at the outset, and they forced 24 turnovers um, on the road. At, at Even though they, they lost to Washington State, I thought it was pretty savvy to go to more of Jalen Graham and Romello White in that game, uh, two bigs. Um, they've done they've done the guard-to-guard -guard pop actions. Remember in Arizona, 
after not having success with the big uh, ball screens with Romello White. Um, they changed it up and they went to a different kind of a package and that was very successful in that game. So I feel like both with their strategy going into games and also some of their adjustments that they've made. Remember, they've played at times nine, ten players deep, ten plus mm-hmm. minutes, and they've come at in waves, which I think has also uh, kept their intensity up, which has allowed this to be their best defensive team, coupled with the way that they've been able to get a lot of deflections and takeaways. And they've also really limited opponent second chance opportunities with their defensive rebounding. Those are the, the hallmarks of what's enabled their defense to be so good. It's funny because they didn't anticipate, I don't think, being this good on defense, especially after losing Lugens Dort and, um, and Silent uh, Cheatham. Those guys were like phenomenal last year defensively, both on the ball and with their help defense but yet um they've made it work and and their offense has been kind of what's lagging especially their perimeter shooting at times and that's what they thought was going to be like their their strength right but again i just would say this has probably been hurley's best job coaching um not really a surprise when you win seven out of eight games and um not that it's been flawless. I think there's you know things that you could point to, like they didn't call any set plays against USC for, for 10 minutes of not scoring a field goal, and there's probably some other things that you could point to. I, I think that they probably should have been using more Graham with Romello White and some bigger lineups earlier in the season, maybe even, maybe even more now. Uh, but by and large, they've done a pretty good job, and they've put themselves in a, a position to where they're now uh, – an odds-on favorite to make a third straight NCAA tournament. And you guys both mentioned it, just the adjustments that Bobby Hurley has made. And, and like you said, Chris, it really started uh, in the Arizona win with the guard-to-guard switch and, and the adjustments he made there. I think another kind of main catalyst for why this team has become so successful, one points off turnovers has has. I mean, they're obviously the defensive efficiency has forced a lot of the points off turnovers. And then two, they're finding their shooting stroke at the right time. In in both of the games this past weekend against Stanford, they shot I I believe 30 it's 31.3% oh, and 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 they held Stanford at 28.6. So they're out shooting Stanford and then they come into Cal, both another road game and they shoot it's uh, 47% from 3. They weren't doing that at the beginning of the year. So they're finding their shooting stroke at the right time. Rob Edwards has shot a lot better in conference play. Like you said Alonzo Verge, he's been a certified bucket getter. He's kind of I mean his drive and kick has been a I mean, he's certified bucket getter. Yeah, he's been able to to score at will when he drives. Surge. Yeah, he's been able to score at will on all of his drives, and and it's causing the defense to collapse. And then he's able to drive and kick, and guys are making their shots. Kamani Lawrence looks a lot more confident. He's hitting more shots. Like I said, Rob Edwards is a lot more consistent. And then you know what you're getting out of Remy Martin. Hit two uh, clutch shots against Cal uh, at the end of that game. You know his off the pick off balance from three how does it go in it's it's kind of unbelievable but but they're shooting a lot better and that's that's really been a catalyst in their efforts and I think an important point that you made Chris is that at the beginning of the year Bobby Hurley said this is going to be his best offensive team and and he didn't anticipate and he joked um in one of the media press conferences last week I think that uh he did a poor job evaluating and that ended up being the other direction but it's really been this team's defense that has sort of saved its season. Um, and we did an article on the website last week where we compared the defensive efficiency rating and also some points per game totals with last year's team. And ASU is better defensively, collectively, uh, on this end in terms of turnover percentage and points per game and a lot of key statistics. And that, I think, has allowed a lot of guys to, to buy in their roles a little bit easier when you're getting out in transition, when you're getting blocked shots and you're able to get a lot more easy baskets. Guys are starting to feel more involved in that sort of um, bringing the the, um, the rotation together collectively. And that's been a huge thing too. And one thing that we didn't mention about the road sweep last week is that it came without Tayshawn Cherry and it came without Khalid Thomas, two guys that have been a key part of that rotation. And they were able to find things and put things together in order to pull those out. And, and Trevor, you mentioned statistics. If you actually have been following ASU's stats on Kempom over the last few games, during their five-game win streak, their offensive efficiency rating has actually gone up a pretty significant amount. They're now ranked number 134 in the country in that category, and that's a pretty significant improvement. Now, Chris, like you said, they haven't been shooting well from the perimeter. They rank 222nd in, in Division One in three-point shooting, but this has been a team that has been improved at least recently offensively. And, and then just to back up statistically what you said, Mason, 
Rob Edwards has been the 16th best three-point shooter in the Pac-12 since conference play began. So the, this team has shown improvements offensively. Chris, you mentioned the adjustments that they've made. I'd say that those have been reflected statistically, especially over their five-game win streak. And that's something that you can kind of track, especially right now with ASU on Ken Palm. Yeah, and and their free throw shooting too has I feel like been been more improved, um, w- which is tough, especially when you go on the road. That that was a, a main problem that has kind of plagued this team early on. And then and then when you put. Jalen Graham and Romello White out on the floor together. You haven't seen it that much, but that duo has been extremely efficient as well. And Chris has said it numerous times that they should go bigger in certain matchups, but but they've been able to to out scheme and out adjust opponents when they're put into certain situations. And having Alonzo Verge coming off the bench, and they're undefeated with Mickey Mitchell in the starting lineup. Which I mean, he I mean, hit a couple. Everybody expected that. He 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 hit a couple. Uh, Big shots in the Cal game. I mean, they hit a Started three. Went off with a three. Yeah, went three for five, eight points in the Cal game, but undefeated. After not scoring against Stanford. Right. It was his first three pointer all season too. So I mean, uh, undefeated with Minky Mitchell in the lineup. I think it's benefited Alonzo Verge to have him coming off the bench because he said it himself. He's able to kind of see the floor, see what the opponents are, uh, what they look like, how they're playing, and then literally he subs into the Cal game. Gets the ball, drive, layup. Like it, it was, it was automatic. He drives into the lane at will. It, it's, it's really remarkable. So, man, so much to unpack. I, Mickey Mitchell is like the guy that you don't expect to be a, a benefit to the team, but yet it somehow works. Um, I think blue guy. Yeah, he just doesn't take shots really that much, and he just plays defense and moves without the ball well and. And, and just kind of takes charges and just does you know a variety of different kind of things. It's working, and credit to Bobby Hurley and what he's doing there. I think in the non-conference, ASU was shooting well below what it would typically average, and so now we're seeing that sort of equalize in conference play. They're, they're, they've definitely shot the ball better. Um, I don't think that they're, this is a, a great shooting team by any stretch, but – the way Verge has kind of got it going, and Rob Edwards has shot the ball much better. And Kamani Lawrence too. I mean, his confidence is surging. He retooled his yeah, shot this weekend. Uh, seemed like it was a big. I mean, Thursday uh, to Sunday looked like it was a big two-game stretch for Lawrence to get a little more comfortable. So I'm interested what you guys think about whether ASU is currently peaking, whether there's still more that they can squeeze out of this. How do they look? shaping into just the last several couple weeks of the season, three weeks, and then the conference tournament and the postseason. Are they going to sustain this? Remember, the schedule is kind of favorable. They got they have Washington, Washington State at home, Oregon State at home. Oregon's a tough game at home. They go on the road at USC, UCLA. That's a little bit tougher, but what do you think? So I know our subscribers think that I am like the positivity of ASU. And in the football season, I you was are. a little bit. I did predict them to beat Michigan State and got credit for that. And win the national championship. I did not predict that. Okay. Um, but I, I think this team is certainly peaking. I can't imagine this team sustaining this level of play. I don't can't believe— Can't imagine it. No, I really can't imagine this team wow. continuing to play the way they are playing uh, down the stretch. For cannot what, conceive of it happening. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Hurley's never coached this well at ASU for any stretch. Yeah, but in my he's mind. already coached against all these teams this year, so he'll have a good game plan. I think that it's. I, I just think it's going to be very difficult for ASU to sustain this level of play. I do think that uh, the success they have had probably is going to get them into the tournament. Now, I think we're seeing that in most of these rankings that we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but I, I don't believe that some of this is sustainable and I don't believe that ASU can continue to get better. I think if it can hold on to this for a couple more weeks, take it into the Pac-12 tournament, that would be kind of the best case scenario. I think they're going to get into the tournament now because of all the success recently, but I don't see this team getting better than they're at right okay, now. Okay, well, just one follow-up and then yep. everybody else can weigh in with their thoughts about both both things. What, what I already asked mm-hmm. about their momentum and trajectory and then also about this. Six games left, Oregon, Oregon State, USC, UCLA on the road, Washington, Washington State at home. How many? Do, what's their record? Three and three over the final six. That's yeah, they split They split it all, three and three. Three and three. What, what do you think about the trajectory and the record? 
Yeah, I, I think it's going to be very dependent on how they do this week because a lot of people are talking about the Oregon game and deservingly so and how they're trying to break the student record with, with attendance and how everyone's coming out to that game. But say they win that game and ASU has done this in the past. They come off a big win and then you still got to play Oregon State on Saturday and that's a sneaky good team. Trace Tinkle is a great scorer. And then if you lose that game, it's like, okay, you have to go into the USC and UCLA games next week and they're right behind you in the Pac-12 standings too. And that's a very tr um, tough road trip to accomplish. So as high as they are right now, it could all very much unwind within the next four games. So I would say if they come out with, with this week with the split, it's going to be very crucial that they pick up those wins next week. If they sweep, I think they'll have the momentum necessary to maybe um, continue what they're doing next week against the, UC um, the UCLA and USC. You know, I, I, I'll answer the question about record over the last six games first, and then I'll explain why. I think ASU goes four and two over the last six games, and I think both of their losses are to the Oregon schools. I think that they lose to Oregon, and then they can't get back up for Oregon State, and then they I kind of can see that too. And then they figure it out for the rest of the way. That that that's where they're I gonna get their second road sweep under Bobby Hurley in the same season Mason, at the LA schools. Why are you even talking right now? You just said that Washington's a sneaky good chance Dude, to win the Pac-12 Their record does not indicate their talent. Their the, record does not indicate their talent. They lost eight straight games. They have no Their record chance. does not indicate their talent. Oh my gosh! All right, so great, Trev. I, I got to answer the second question. I think they're gonna finish four and two. I think they're gonna split this week and next, and then they'll win the last two against the Washington schools. I. I think that's the most likely scenario. I think four and two is a little more likely than three and three. Well, I I just see a, a lot of splits in the future because this is a team that they're peaking now. Like Rob said, we and don't I agree. That. That's an opinion. That's not that, a that's, fact. Yeah. That's your. That's your. Yeah, guy. yeah. That's, well, that's what sense. I'm saying. That in my in my opinion, okay. they're peaking now. <laughs> you no, know, you didn't say it. But okay. Okay. Go ahead. Well, let me clarify. In my opinion, okay. they're peaking now, and yeah. and. I don't believe that this level of play is sustainable for six games left that I believe is really not that favorable of a schedule because I think they already lost to Washington State. And at they're going to want to – yeah, at Washington State, that's fine. Washington, I already said, their record does not indicate their level of talent. That's going to be a tougher game than people give it credit for. Oregon is an extremely tough opponent, as everyone knows. Like Trevor said, Oregon State is a sneaky good team to, to host. And then the L.A. schools road trip, that those are tough games to win too. So four and two, I believe I don't think is more likely than three and three. But so at what, best, I think they split the next three series. Okay, just just let me just counterpoint this, right? Do it. So ASU's eight and four in the yeah. conference, mm -hmm. and have they played already similar or equivalent or harder series at home and on the road? Yes, yeah. they of course have. Yeah, Colorado going to Colorado and Utah is mm -hmm. tougher. Then, you know, Washington, Washington State probably. Oh, they didn't go there, did they? No. Never mind. So Cal, Cal Stanford probably equal to, to Washington, Washington State, or I would say. I would disagree, but okay. How can you disagree? Washington, because be, well, I, understand, I understand that, Washington, but that's Washington more. State are in the bottom. But that's more of a coaching thing with Washington than, than their actual level no, of talent. No, no. I, well, I no, think it, I think no, it is. No. Mike Hopkins is a very good coach. They're the unluckiest team in the Pac-12 in Ken well, Palm. This gets you to your next point. Okay, so that rather well that 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 rather well that serves you well. But but I just don't I just don't agree. If you if you just purely based off of off of the numbers purely, this is actually ASU's. If you look at the team rankings, easiest stretch of six games in a row that they've had all season, the Washington and Washington State two games are easier by just by metrics than the Stanford and Cal series. It's at home, and both of the two teams, you have six, number 64, Kempom, Washington. You started with number 45, Kempom, Stanford. Then you have 178, Cal, and 127, Washington State. Okay, but we know how unreliable those numbers have been in the past. Okay, but it's a home game. It's a home series. What do you mean unreliable? Those were two, what I'm those saying is two higher ASU is 50 and Arizona is 8 in the net. And but the, so, not, so what I'm not even talking about the net. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that when you compare yeah. rosters to, to one another on pure talent, Washington is a more talented team than their eight-game losing streak but indicates. They, they clearly proved that they can't use their talent. They don't have any guards right now. They have I'm, no I'm, guards. They have no point guard. Mason, we will see. You're, you're, when, you're, you're, you're looking at this in terms of NBA prospects. You're not looking at this in terms of the best teams. Washington has clearly been the worst team in the Pac-12. 
They've lost eight straight games. It doesn't mean that. Okay, so it's a trap game, though. At the end of the day, that's different. That's. I, I, I mean, I think that it's better. just. I. I. In my opinion, I believe it's a tougher six-game stretch than a lot of people give it credit. I mean, for. Bobby Hurley's teams well, have had a hard time there. getting up for games that I, at, at times. So, I, I. That's fine, but I don't. It's. It's not a tougher. It's not a tougher stretch. Washington and Washington State are in the bottom third, bottom quarter. Of the Pac-12 in every in every ranking, right? Okay. Oregon State is not in the top six teams in the conference, so they, that means that three of their last six opponents are among the bottom teams in the conference, and they get four games at home. Mason, it, are home games better than away games? Oh, of course. Oh, but so they have four at home and two and away, and the ones that are away are not the best teams in the league. It's not Arizona. It's not Oregon. It's not Colorado. So that means this is a favorable schedule. They have not really hard teams on the road, only two games on the road, four games at home, including against the easiest teams in the league by metrics. Quote unquote, yeah, by metrics, though. I just. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> it's not just quote unquote, it's the record. At I this understand point. that. I just. I, <laughs> quote unquote. A lot of it. <laughs> when I, it's how they do. When I look at the. It's just like you said, I guess I'm going based on NBA prospects, but. but at the end of the day, though, yes, you already beat Washington. I understand that, but it was close. Like it, it was not an easy In Seattle, win. Seattle, that's a, t- a tough place to go play. I under- yeah, I understand all that. It's fine. What, what would you? Just this one game. Would you guys say that ASU is going to win or lose against UCLA? I would pick ASU to beat UCLA in ASU most settings. Yeah, I'd pick them to. That's beat UCLA. the game I'd I'd split. I'd say lose to USC. Okay. Okay. So. That game, the ASU-UCLA game, is the only game on Kempom right now in the remaining six games that is a 50-50 shot for ASU to win it by the metrics. If you go with them winning that game, if ASU beats UCLA, then they are projected to go 4-2 and two over their remaining six games, and it's not even close. And that's 70%, 70% chance to beat Oregon State. 64% chance to beat Washington and 80% to beat Washington State. And then I, if you're going to give ASU oh. the split on that the 50-50 over Chris's UCLA. Point. That proves Chris's I know. Point. I'm, pro- I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to prove Chris's point because Chris is right. <laughs> well, I mean, Mason, nobody's right you're, yet because you're, the games haven't been played. Yeah, Mason, you, right you, but no, but Mason, you think about it in terms of like one game. I think of it in terms of what's the most likely scenario if you if you played it this, the thing out a hundred times, a thousand times, right. a million times, and that's that's what these models are really are about. And, but here's the last part I'm going to make because we talked about the luck factor, and then we'll switch to football. Probably we've lost probably half the audience already. <laughs> <laughs> but the two years ago, ASU's basketball team remember went uh, 19 and 0. I think it was was it night? It was 19. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was. Non-conference. Oh, 12 and 0. 12 and 0. Sorry. Thank you. 19. Way too many games. Uh, They went 12 and 0. They were the last undefeated team in the country. Um, They were ranked in the two or three in the country. And they were rolling. And then they went 8 and 10 in conference play in the regular season. Uh, But importantly, their their luck factor, which um, on Ken Palm – was 340, which is among the worst in the country. They were the most unlucky teams in the country. The luck factor is what this team will do with their metrics against their schedule on average. Okay, So on average, that ASU team would have done better than it actually performed in the standings. Quite a bit, maybe. Maybe a few games, at least. This ASU team this year is... um, among the, the, the tops in the country in this luck factor. It's actually like 18th nationally in luck. 17th, pardon me. It moved up one since yesterday. They didn't even play. But so, so they're 17th in luck. So, this, so the people are asking, why in some of these rankings is Arizona a top 10 team, like in net or in Ken Palm? But they're, they're, they've split head-to-head, and their records look very comparable, right? And even if you go to like the NCAA uh, tournament selection criteria, right, quad one, quad two, et cetera, ASU stacks up very well against Arizona in that regard also. The difference is that Arizona is considered one of the unluckier teams in major conference basketball at uh, 268 uh, overall in this luck factor, and while ASU 17th in the country. And... um, so if you look at a lot of the modeling, this is not just one site. Ken Palm 
has a luck factor. But then you go to team rankings. On team rankings, Arizona, despite not being uh, outpacing any of the other top four to six teams in, in the standings, is overwhelmingly the highest percent chance to win the Pac-12 tournament. Pardon me. Um, it's like over 35% chance to win the Pac-12 tournament. No other team is higher than like in the low 20s. Point being that the, the, the statistics modeling of Arizona against its schedule reflects that it actually on average would be doing quite a bit better than its 18 and 7 record currently. Right, maybe it would only ha- maybe it'd be like twenty and five, twenty one and four, something like that on average. And ASU, on the flip side, at seventeen and eight and having one seven of eight Pac twelve games in a row, is probably outperforming what it would do on average by a few games. And that's something to keep in mind because Rob says he doesn't think that ASU is going to continue this pace. Mm-hmm. Well, the luck factor would would no- tend to more normalize, regress to the mean on average, which would lend itself to the theory that a team like Arizona will perform better in subsequent games and ASU or any other team that is, has been very lucky relative to what some of these modeling are will actually uh, regress. So I that's think something to just keep in mind. Very quickly, Rob, because I know you're upset at me. I think what I'm trying to say is just are. more so that the six-game stretch is tougher than people give it credit for. And I have a question. Who, who, seriously who, back to that? Who? Who? Is the only team it's in the country not. to beat Baylor, the number one team in the country. There's one team who did it. Okay, it's can, Washington. Can I? Can I just? It's Washington. Can I just? Kill point made. Point made. No, can point I just made. Kill your point right now. Point made. Who was Washington's point guard in that game? I understand they they Quade lost Quade Green. Green. I understand they lost Quade Green. He hasn't. He has. He's the difference for their team. One guy doesn't make a team. One guy doesn't make a team. No. Are Oregon and ASU? You can move on, Rob. Wait, hold on. No, no, we're not moving on. <laughs> Oregon, ASU, and Colorado. I'm not the boss here. Might yeah. be the three best teams in the league right now. Correct? Might be. Arizona, right? Yeah. But Oregon, Colorado, ASU, they have the three top point guards probably in the Pac-12 right now. Mm-hmm. Coincidence? I think not. Yeah. That's what Quade Green's point. advantage is. I'm just Okay. Understood. He pro- I don't even know. He probably had a really good game in that game against Baylor. I don't remember. Are we done with basketball or can I throw in one more point? One last thing that I okay. want to talk about <laughs> is this Thursday's game and how it could influence uh, the Pac-12 player of the year. Yeah. Uh, and I think, Trevor, that's exactly what you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Take it away, yeah. scout. Yeah, so I just looked up before the podcast, oh, okay. um, and four of the last six Pac-12 player of the years have been the teams from teams that have won the regular season title. Uh, the last one to not be on the team that won the regular season title was Joe Young for Oregon in 2015. So playing into this, if ASU can finish strong and finish toward the top of the conference, and th- this meeting specifically, because it's at the end of the season, it has two of those top guys with Remy Martin and Peyton Pritchard, it's going to carry a lot of weight. Green, I uh, just looked it up. Had two points. He had nine assists in the game. So two he, points. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Big impact. You, two points. You're, he had nine assists. Well, how I, many games have... We got to stop wait, talking hold on. about How many games has any team in the Pac-12 had a guy with nine I assists? Know. I can't answer that for you. Almost none. I think I it's almost that. none. Almost none, right? Do you remember a bunch of 10 assist games from anybody in the Pac-12 this year? No, I, no, I don't. Is, does it matter if you get your, your teammates a bunch of buckets? I didn't watch the game, so I can't answer that. Okay, that doesn't even make any sense. His, Obviously, it his does. His team made twenty-four field goals, and he assisted on nine of them. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> he had two points, though. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. All right, all right, all right. That's it. We're moving on to ASU football. Spring football. The spring practice schedule starts next Monday, February twenty-fourth. Uh, be sure to keep it locked on Sun Devil Source for all of that. And um, we've got position previews for each position group that will be rolling out all week long. Each one includes the biggest loss, biggest addition, best players, and biggest questions uh, for that group. Um, We're going to start with quarterback, uh, and I am doing uh, the quarterback position this week. Um, So obviously, Jaden Daniels returns behind him, Ethan Long. There is no third scholarship quarterback on the roster going into the spring. Uh, Dalen McElmore uh, coming as a summer arrival. Um, But as as Chris and I were uh, alluding to um, in the piece uh, which you guys can check out on the site. It'll be up uh, in the next day or so. 
Daniels obviously is going to have to learn a new offense, new terminology under Zach Hill. He's going to have to try to refine his mechanics a little bit with Hill being a uh, a quarterback developer in the past. Uh, Chris, what more do you think about the quarterback position? Yeah, just taking a look at how Jaden Daniels looks physically. He's had you know almost two months to kind of work on his body since the end of the season. Right. Uh, he's going to need to really continuously develop himself from a physical standpoint to be able to handle the punishment that these guys tend to take, especially as much as he has to move around and and, uh, scramble and make plays with his feet when things break down. I also want to see how quickly he's able to master this new offense at the running and how seamlessly that can be rolled out with the rest of the players around him. And then I think, the knock on Daniels, I don't, I not really my opinion, but if you look at like the pro football focus stuff, it was th- saying that he wasn't that accurate of a passer. So I, uh, people are gonna, some people at least are gonna want to see him continue to improve right. uh, his ability to locate the football exactly where it needs to be. Um, but he had a terrific first year. I expect he's gonna build off of it, and I don't think that this is an area where there needs to be all that much. Uh, focus. We're going to have a lot more of a hyper interest in uh, a lot of the other positions on the offense, of course, because there's a lot more moving parts. Uh, I do. I would say that Ethan Long's development is important because I, I thought that he, in high school film, and then also last year, uh, the game was a little bit too fast for him as a, as a passer in the pocket, and he tended to not be able to see and account for defensive players and put the ball in jeopardy. You need somebody who is going to be able to, in, in, in a pinch, go out there and, and handle the, the, the assignments. And so without ASU having to resort to being an option type of a football team with the backup quarterback, you're going to have to see a little bit more development from him in the pocket in advance of Dalen McLemore arriving in the summer. Moving on to the running back position. Yeah, and Chris, Chris, you mentioned it. Some of the big departures, Eno Benjamin, a huge one for ASC, one of the best rushers in the school's history. We saw what he did at the end of the last season, how he was able to pick it up after dealing with an offensive line that was sort of retooling those first couple weeks of the year. ASU's got five guys on scholarship going into the spring, including fullback. It's returnees A.J. Carter and Demetrius Flowers and then Case Hatch at fullback. And then perhaps if, if, if um, people read on the site Chris's signee analysis, perhaps the greatest infusion of talent with uh, Daniel Nagata and Diamante Trainum coming into the program. Um, so right away, and then this was another thing noted in the analysis online, is that these guys are going to have a chance to be in the two deep, especially since they're here in January and they're here in the spring, and they're going to have the opportunity to compete. And it might even be harder for A.J. Carter to, and Demetrius Flowers to sort of get in for playing time when Eno Benjamin was here because of, the fa- because of the fact that these guys, the two freshmen, complement each other pretty well as rushers in the skill set that they're able to bring in. Um, so the the big question is how are they going to replace Eno Benjamin in terms of the rushing factor, in terms of the blocking, and that's something they're going to have to figure out going forward. I just think, generally speaking, running back is a position at which freshmen can come in and make an impact early, and especially so when they're on campus in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, even perhaps more so because the returning players don't have an advantage on learning the offense over the newcomers, right? So – uh, there was nothing really that stood out at from AJ Carter or Demetrius Flowers that led me to the belief that um, they have an edge in this competition. I think statistically, athletically, um, the alpha status of these two newcomers, Daniel Ngata and Deamonte Trinum, very high. They're very uh, high-performing players who look like great prospects and my sense is that they're gonna pretty quickly rise to the top of the depth chart and I think they're complementary in that you can put them on the field together you can have some back motion with Ngata uh you can go to a you know overused turn thunder lightning kind of a you know thing where you get change of pace with whoever you go with depending upon the type of team that you're playing you can keep the guys fresh that's another thing is that as Trevor was saying, you know, Benjamin sucked up so much of the oxygen because they didn't really have anybody else, but he could handle that volume of workload. What's that going to look like moving forward, splitting it up between these guys? But I, I, I'm just – you would normally think that the talent quotient's going to drop off after you lose a guy like Benjamin. 
I don't think that the talent quotient is going to drop off. I think ASU is going to be pretty much equally as talented with these two newcomers in the backfield. And then we're going to move on to wide receiver. Uh, yeah, they had their biggest uh, or best signing class at the position, but none of those four four-star guys are going to be here in the spring. Uh, so it's really a big opportunity for the returners to get far ahead in terms of learning this new scheme under Zach Hill. Um, Frank Darby really needs to show that he can round out his game more instead of just being a deep ball threat, which he's kind of earned that label uh, in the program. Um, and then they have Jordan Porter, another guy who, who's quick. He's long, he's big, he's strong, but could has room for growth in that department. Another kind of deep ball threat who we haven't seen a whole lot of. I know he was injured at the beginning of last year, so um, gives him an opportunity to kind of round out his game and show what he can do. And then uh, Ricky Pearsall and Jordan Curley played a lot last year as true freshmen, but didn't really have eye-popping numbers. Uh, no touchdowns really limited in terms of their overall reception numbers. Um, but but it gives a lot of these guys the, the opportunity, like I said, to, to understand the new scheme and make strides uh, in order to push themselves ahead of these four guys who are going to come in in the summer who have a lot of talent but will need to learn the playbook and uh, learn the college game overall because they'll be true freshmen. Um, having a year in the program already puts the, these returners at an advantage. And then you have guys like like uh, Andre Johnson who redshirted last year, um, who, who played in four games on special teams, so he got in on some of the action but preserved a year of eligibility. Um, he'll have a chance to, I mean, he's big, he's six, all of probably six foot two, pushing six foot three, and, uh, and, and big will have a chance. And then Brandon Pierce, who uh, was undersized and, and definitely probably thinner and, and not as doesn't have as much strength, so getting the opportunity to get in the weight room and put some, some mass on will be, be big for him and then uh, maybe have a potential role on special teams as well. Um, but for the spring, that's kind of the main thing we're looking for, all these guys to, to round out their games, learn the playbook. Um, with new position coaches and Derek Hagan and Prentice Gill, we've heard so much about Prentice Gill, the recruiter, but we'll, we'll finally see him in action as a position coach and, and finding out uh, how Derek Hagan and Prentice Gill are splitting duties, um, maybe inside, outside wide receivers coach, and, and maybe they'll split off and do tight ends and, and running backs as well, but we'll, we'll see how that whole thing works. Um, and those are kind of the main things we're looking for at wide receiver. Well, the big thing here, Mason, is ASU is losing a ton of its production, offensive production, Ayuk right. and Kyle Williams. And only Frank Darby, of the returning six players on the roster, has received more than several targets in his entire career. Mm-hmm. So, And let's also underline that by saying that Darby isn't a guy who's been a high-volume workload receiver. He's been more of a big-play threat that they've tried to get to round out his game, okay? So Daniels has to have guys that he can throw the ball to reliably and do their jobs. And and so this is going to be an opportunity to see who's going to elevate and give themselves the opportunity of being on the field as much as possible and give themselves a head start before these four four-star guys get on campus. Um I think you're looking at the Darby's probably going to play the Z position again. He can also play X. Jordan Porter has primarily been the X big play guy. Hands are a little, have been a little bit of a question mark. Route running is still kind of early from a developmental standpoint. The other outside players are Jordan Curley, really dynamic route runner in practice setting. Mm-hmm. Wasn't able to carry it over to games with um, just some of his physical composure and being able to uh, ward off defensive players, have a presence at the ball's arrival. Ricky Pearsall, I think, probably looked the best in terms of just route running and uh, assignment execution. He can play inside or outside. I think, mm-hmm. I think I look for him to actually take a pretty decent jump uh, in the spring. He's a big physical kid also. And then we'll see what happens with some of these others. Uh, Brandon Pierce, quick shifty, can be a movement back mm-hmm. in this offense. And uh, Andre Johnson was primarily a field-stretching type of a guy um, as well. All right, moving on now toward the tight end position. Jacob? Yeah, ASU lost uh, two players over the offseason. Senior Tommy Hudson obviously graduated, and then uh, junior Jared Buback is a grad transfer. He announced that, or that was announced last week. 
Uh, they do add two new tight ends. Jake Ray, as a, as a scholarship player, he will be joining ASU over the summer. And then Ryan Morgan is a blue shirt, expected to be blue shirted. He also is not eligible to join ASU until the summer due to the blue shirt status. And then also worth note, ASU does add Johnny Wilson, who is a part of the wide receiver group. But at six foot six and at least 220 pounds, he could potentially be a hybrid type of guy in Zach Hill's offense where he could play some sort of combination of wide receiver, tight end kind of a role because of how big he is. And then also worth mention, Zach Hill talked about in his signing day press conference a couple of weeks ago that Jake Ray was a guy that he saw on film that has really good movements and his ability to run routes. And that was one of the things that he was impressed with about Jake Ray. So uh, the group loses two and adds two, and then potentially Johnny Wilson as, a, as a, another guy to join that group. Right, but as you said, the two newcomers aren't going to be here for spring football, right? So they're only going to have two tight ends on the roster for the spring. That's really the key thing. Curtis Hodges... Converted wide receiver, hybrid guy. Interested to see how they utilize him in some of these condensed formations. His ability to align in different places on the field. Nolan Matthews, more of a full-service player, more of a guy that can get into a three-point stance, play attached. I'm interested to see what they do with some of the two tight end structures. And then the other thing is that Case Hatch, as a fullback, is going to be able to play probably in some of these H-back looks and, and some different things that they will ramp up what uh, he's asked to do. I'm interested to see what this sort of looks like. you you got to say if you're Hodges or Matthews or Hatch, you're going to get a tremendous amount of opportunities before these other guys arrive in the summer. And those guys are going to need to demonstrate at a position where you have a lot of things to know and, and, and remember that they're going to be able to get to where they are on the field with whatever the play is called, be able to get lined up, be able to go and execute their assignment. We've seen over the years at ASU, a lot of times tight ends with how many um, new guys have come in and out of the program, the changes with the position coach, the offensive coordinator, a lot of alignment issues Mm -hmm. with tight ends. And if you can't get aligned properly, you're not going to be able to execute properly. And even look at last year, you had Nolan Matthews, multiple false start mm-hmm. issues, took them out of their two tight end package when they went to UCLA. Right. Curtis Hodges has had some assignment issues, drops, et cetera, et cetera. So these guys are going to have to show if they want to. Tommy Hudson had that huge drop that potentially cost if, them. The if USC these guys want to show that they have the ability to do what, what, they, what Zach Hill wants to in this offense, they're going to have a, a big task this spring. All right, moving toward offensive line, Chris, I know you did that one. Right, so clearly ASU is having a lot of players to replace here. They, four guys that either were regular starters or had started, uh, not to mention, of course, Zach Robertson, who didn't play last year. Um, and this is a team that only returns one player who's a sophomore or junior from last year. That's Oregon transfer Cody Shear, who – didn't really see the field. Um, there's a lot of new moving parts. And Kellen Dyche is the the number one most important guy that we're probably right. watching this spring. Texas A&M transfer. Herm Edwards alluded to the fact that there'll be a new guy at left tackle. That's Dyche. That means that ASU is probably going to kick over Ladarius Henderson from left tackle to right tackle after he started last year as a true freshman, 17-year-old. How's that going to look? Uh, who's going to be the number three offensive tackle for ASU in the spring? You got Ralph Frias. You got Spencer Lovell maybe has a chance. You got Ben Scott as a guy who looked really good redshirting last year mm-hmm. as a freshman. Uh, next question is, is Cade Cody going to get a sixth year of eligibility? We still don't know that. We know he's uh, you know put it in for one. Mm-hmm. If he does, he probably stands a good chance of uh, being the odds-on favorite to replace Cole Cabral as the center. Uh, that would allow Donovan West to remain at right guard where he excelled last year, probably was ASU's best player. Uh, and then you have these other guys that um, were closely following Jarrett Bell as a right. sophomore. Right. They looked at him as a center last year. I think he was a little bit too mechanical and had some issues with the snapping. Is he a little bit smoother with a lot, some of his, uh, his the refinement of a lot of his movement this year? Um, is Cody Shear going to be able to take a jump after practicing last year? He mm-hmm. can. He's a guy who's a jack of all trades. He can go anywhere from 
center to outside to tackle, you know, maybe. Um, ben Scott, to me, reminds a little bit uh, Quinn Bailey, uh, a guy who played a swing role, left tackle, I mean right tackle and right guard for ASU. I, I think Ben Scott might be able to play guard. He's further along from a pass pro standpoint than maybe a run blocking just based upon his high school. Mm-hmm. And then does anybody else make an unanticipated jump? Like I think Ralph Frias has the potential physically. Right. He's had a hard time sort of picking up uh, and being fluent with a lot of the schematics of everything. So, and, and, and what happens if Kate Cody isn't able to, to go as a center? Does ASU shift Donovan West to there? Do they play Jarrett Bell? I think they're going to look at a, a variety of things. And remember, they will also get Henry Haddis, the Stanford grad transfer, but that won't happen until this summer because he won't be graduated from Stanford until June. I think he probably is the odds-on favorite to end up as a left guard for this team. Left to right, just an early forecast. If they do get K. Cody's sixth year, I think we're probably looking at Dyche, Haddis, Cody, West, and the Darius Henderson as the most likely combination left to right. Really protecting the blind side of Daniels in that situation. If if Dyche performs mm-hmm. to the to the expectations, they could be improved um, with on their left side. Haddis was a starter at Stanford before getting hurt and knocked out early um, for the Cardinal season last year. And this is the most important position group that we're looking at because if you can block and protect for Daniels and your run game, and mm-hmm. that, that, that unlocks so much right. for the rest of the, your team Definitely. and the defense should be progressing in, in, uh, this year as well. All right. Moving toward the defensive line group. Oh, that's also me. That is also you. Bob. Right. So, um, Two losses from last year's team. George Lee, remember, he got uh, had the bad knee injury in the second half of last season. Uh, they also, you know, they got a, a pretty good addition in Roe Wilkins last year as a plug guy. Uh, he ha- had a, a good role as a dual run pass. You know, probably not a great dynamic pass rusher getting to the quarterback and whatnot, but I think he was very serviceable. So that that's what they have that they're losing. They were able to finesse the playing time last year of Amiri Johnson and Stefan Wright, which enabled those guys to both redshirt. So that's two ends that I think have more upside than the guys that they're replacing. Uh, they don't have the experience factor, but the talent uh, level is, is going to be really improving. Uh, you look at the other ends on the team. Jermaine Lole, of course, was the leading tackler, I think, in the Pac-12 among defensive linemen last year, and he has the ability to take his game to another level. Uh, consistency of habits is really the, the focus with him. Big games, big weeks, he plays up. When the games aren't as big or maybe practices just kind of got weeks to go before you're playing any game, he maybe has lulls. Got to really kind of address that. Um, I think the nose position is pretty much solidified with DJ Davidson backed by TJ Pesafea. Pesafea is really talented. Uh, but Davidson is a guy who, who definitely looks like someone who can play at the next level, in my opinion. Um, you could also maybe conceivably play both of those guys together in some bigger fronts. If you go to some 40 down stuff against some pro style teams and then uh, does anybody else sort of elevate at this position group? Uh, you, you have, Michael Matus, who I thought was a great pass rusher in practice setting, but didn't really translate it to games. You have Shannon Foreman, an extremely experienced guy who can sort of be like a George Lee, where he can play inside, outside, three tech, do whatever you kind of need there. And he's improved his body. But the guys that have just a, a huge amount of upside as in a defense that's probably going to become more aggressive, play more four-down stuff, gets into some wide nines. Amiri Johnson made a big jump last year, and uh, Stephon Wright certainly has talent. And then Anthony Cooper redshirted, and I think he fits this defense reasonably well. Also, Omar Norman Lott was only one core class shy of qualifying early, and uh, he is a dynamic Specimen, one of the better defensive linemen in the West in the class. And then Joe Moore is an edge type of a player who I think helps as his team tries to get uh, more pass rushers. Moving toward linebacker, Jacob, you had that group? Yeah, so ASU departs two players. Kalen Kirst-Thomas, senior. He was arguably ASU's best linebacker last Mm -hmm. season. 
and Tyler Johnson is no longer with the program. He decided that he would retire from football. However, ASU still does return three juniors, Merlin Roberts and Darian Butler, Kyle Soley, excuse me. All three of those guys are capable and experienced players who could definitely be relied on to elevate their games in 2020. Uh, Stanley Lambert returns. He's rehabbing a, a knee injury. Uh, he obviously will be on campus for spring football, but at the moment he's more of just a straight line pass rusher just due to the knee issues. Uh, ASU also brings back Elijah Juarez, who played in a fullback role for the first six, six weeks of last season and then has had some conditioning issues after ASU decided to move him back to his recruited position of linebacker, especially during ASU's bowl prep. And then as far as freshmen goes, Jordan Banks and Kayla McCullough will both be on campus for spring football. They're already on campus. Antonio Pierce has talked about Jordan Banks and Kayla McCullough, especially Banks being a very physically mature linebacker and a guy that could potentially make an impact right away for ASU, especially with Tyler Johnson no longer with the team. He's one of those kind of guys that could profile as an edge rushing pass rusher, kind of a guy for ASU, the kind of role that Tyler Johnson played last year. And, and then they also add Will Schaefer, who is expected to be blue shirted and he won't join the program until the summer. Right. So clearly this is a, a group that didn't improve with some of the freshmen as much as anticipated last year. Merlin Robertson was super candid about that with us, said he had a definite sophomore slump and one that he was disappointed in. Darian Butler played well at times. I don't know that he really elevated his play significantly over his freshman year. Um, I think that they struggled against the pass in particular. This group, they weren't great pass rushing, and they didn't really handle uh, uh, underneath zone stuff very well. Um, so there's some things that they got to work on. And mm -hmm. Stanley Lambert, as you mentioned there, even though he practiced in full last year for most of the year, he didn't have that start-stop redirect right. ability. So he would fly by the quarterback at times, and then he'd run himself out of plays as opposed to being able to break down, change directions. I'm interested to see just a couple, few extra months of progress, what that enables for him, because he is a big, athletic, in a linear kind of a way type, type of an athlete. And then Elijah Juarez being full-time now at linebacker after, remember, last year he played some fullback and bounced around what he brings to the fold because he's a big pretty athletic kid for his size. Mm -hmm. And I do think as Jacob was saying that banks can make a big impact early. Um, it, I, I'm curious to see when they go to more of these, more of their 40 stuff, is that more of a, a true edge guy like a banks or do they go with a guy who's a hybrid with his hand in the ground in a more of a four down with like a Mary Johnson, or do they try to put those guys on the field together? Um, if they did that, they probably wouldn't have five defensive backs, though. So that's – and I think some of that might be relative to the opponent that they're playing uh, on a week-to-week -week basis. So some of their packages that they roll out, that's – I think they're going to have a, several sub-packages, and we're going to have to track kind of what that also looks like. Kyle Soley, remember Danny Gonzalez said over and over, he doesn't look the part necessarily, but he performs at a very high level – and now he's going to have an opportunity to become a starter as well. Yeah, and then moving on to the cornerback position, Trevor. Yeah, so the key departure here is going to be Kobe Williams. Uh, mm -hmm. Last year, the coaches said that he was the best player on the defense. He got the defensive MVP at the team's banquet at the end of the year. They also lost Darian Cornet, who was a guy on special teams, but Kobe Williams was the guy that people are going to look at and say he was the most steady player. Um, ASU's top two cornerbacks, Really talented potential-wise, Chase Lucas and Jack Jones. Both could be guys that could be NFL draft picks at, at, after, um, excuse me, next season. And they um, both considered going at the end of last year. We reported in December that Chase Lucas stayed because Tony White was promoted to defensive coordinator. And now he's not going to be there. Now Chris Hawkins is ASU's defensive backs coach. So a lot of change in terms of coaching and how they're going to have to be able to figure out with that. Um, we noted last year when you talk about the Oregon State game where Chase Lucas um, and Jack Jones both had some lapses. Um, they're going to have to eliminate those and be locked in mentally. And if they can, this could be a really talented position group for ASU. Um, Tamarcus Davis showed flashes as a really aggressive player, especially um, in fall camp last season with what he was able to do on special teams. But he did get lost at times, too. Um, Jordan Clark redshirted and the coaches um, 
lauded him last year and, and the impact that he was going to be able to make in the future. We'll see if he can move up to the second team this year. Keon Markham, we saw in flashes, he was injured for most of the times. And if everything holds still, if those top two guys um, can do what they're supposed to do, and then um, if they, ASU can fill out its second team with those guys we just mentioned, it should be easier um, when Mason Williams, he's going to be here in the spring, and then DJ Taylor in the summer. Assuming things go well at the top, those guys can redshirt and then be able to fulfill those ta um, their talents in future years as well. Right, so uh, Kobe Williams, his consistency, his habits, what he did stabilizing the defense is probably underappreciated and difficult to replace. I will say, though, that the physical talent of the guys who are probably going to start there, Jack Jones, Chase Lucas, is very high. Like Kobe Williams isn't going to get drafted probably, even though he plays well enough to be an NFL consideration. Jack Jones is a draft prospect. Mm -hmm. Chase Lucas, a draft prospect. Mm -hmm. So if those guys bring the consistency of their habits, the way they approach preparing for games, studying film, learning the, the, the finer details and nuances of the, the, their opponent's tendencies and technique and at the line of scrimmage, that's how you become really successful and right. take it to the next level. Right. And, uh, I think that it was there increasingly more mm -hmm. as last season unfolded, mm -hmm. but not all the way there. Right. And Chase Lucas, this is such an important year for him. This is a guy he sees as two of his best friends, Byron Murphy and Nikhil Harry, drafted really high, making a lot of money during the NFL. He aspires to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. If he had left after last season, probably not going to be drafted, right? We're talking about a guy who has the potential to impact his life to the tune of seven figures or more based upon what he does over the next eight months, right. nine months, okay? That's major. That's major in your life, okay? you got to have that dialed in focus if you're Chase Lucas. Now, I will also say that uh, Jack Jones probably weighed a buck 50-something last year. He came in literally off the streets. Mm -hmm and joined ASU's program and was like thrust into action as ASU's number three guy. Okay. This guy, after like a year of eating and having stability in his life and living in a good place, now he's got the opportunity to take his game to a different kind of a place. Mm -hmm. And he should. Okay. And also if I'm Jack Jones, I'm looking at this, like I really would like to be able to demonstrate and maybe even chase Lucas that I can be a return man. I can be, I can be very good from a coverage standpoint on special teams. I, I people are going to draft you based upon your ability to make an impact on special teams. Remember Omar Bolden went to the NFL at an ASU and he was like a, a backup corner then became a backup safety but he was a great special teams player mm -hmm. and he stuck in the league for several years as a result of that okay so right. that matters now beyond these guys asu has probably the best talent that we've seen at depth in a spring ball since i've been covering the program okay if not very close in the top running that's because they have at least five guys who are pac-12 starter talent prospects okay to marcus davis freak of nature right. athlete needs again to get a lot better with his habits and understanding of defense and what teams are trying to do jordan clark a lot of people in the program last year are referring to him already as kobe williams 2.0 he's a guy who is maybe a little bit bigger stronger but has a lot of the same movement skills and habits dad played in the nfl on espn all the time student of the game and all that and then keon markham is every bit of six foot, six foot one, 200 pounds mm -hmm. as a guy who has movement skills to be a cornerback. Right now, he's like maybe their fifth corner. Well, gosh, I mean, that that never happens, right? So this, this group has the potential to be great. And how important is that when you're trying to be more aggressive with your overall defense, right? If you can lock up on the islands, that is what allows you to bring more pass rushers. That's what allows you to be more aggressive in the way that you play the game uh, with your calls right. as a defense. And that's what Marvin Lewis and Antonio Pierce want to do. That's what they prefer to do. They want guys pinning their ears back, and they want uh, the ability to man you up on the perimeter and to not let you get behind them and to not let you make a lot of plays in on those contested catches. So the, it's all there for the taking for these guys, and they have to now lean into that. All right, final position group, safety. Mason, take it away. And it goes back to what Chris said. The defensive backfield as a whole is 
it has a lot of depth come come springtime. The safety position returns all three starters from last year in Evan Fields at Tillman, Ashari Crosswell, and Cam Phillips at Ranger. We'll see kind of what schematic differences there are uh, now that Tony White is gone as well as Danny Gonzalez and if there's a, a major shift to the 3-3-5 that they were using, um, it's going to probably be Marvin Lewis, Chris Hawkins, and, and Herm Edwards uh, all working with the defensive backs come springtime. So we'll kind of see uh, what that looks like. Um, but it's good for this unit overall to, to return all three of last year's starters. Uh, Evan Fields probably was last season's most improved player in terms of the jump he made from his sophomore to his junior year. Uh, now entering his senior year, uh, we'll see w what kind of strides he makes in that. I mean, he was super physical against the run, had uh, showed up in the Michigan State game. Just a very consistent overall player uh, for that defensive backfield. Uh, for Ashari Crosswell, after his freshman year, Chris, I know you said that he had the potential to possibly be a day one, day two NFL draft pick. Didn't make this, the strides maybe necessary to get to that level last year. Um, maybe not so much a regression, but didn't really make the strides in his sophomore season. And then Cam Phillips in his redshirt freshman season last year was relatively consistent as well. He had a concussion, uh, I think, in the Cal game, so he, he faced some injuries. But um, returning all three of those guys is huge for this unit. In terms of the depth, uh, it's pretty young, but it's guys who had played. So you have Kiwan Markham, who played in, if not every game, almost every game last year, did not preserve his redshirt year. And then Willie Hartz, who also did not preserve his redshirt year, played in almost every game and had a huge interception in the bowl game, in the Florida State game. So those are two guys who have played a lot, definitely need to get bigger and stronger. Willie Hart has been lauded for his feet and, and how fast he is, but but maybe not as technically sound. Then uh, Kiwan Markham um, had some coverage issues uh, throughout the season, um, and in that Florida State game, a prime example, ended up getting a, peep, a, a pass breakup, but had to make a full-on recovery after getting beat on a double move. So, so some coverage issues that they'll have to get worked out, but definitely good for these guys who were not early enrollees last year. So this is their first spring ball, uh, a first time to get a full year in the weight room uh, and, and put on some mass. And then you have Connor Soley, who's probably going to back up Evan Fields at Tillman. Uh, I mean, he was injured all of last year on crutches for a majority of the time. So, so we'll kind of see him uh, come springtime and, and the action he gets in the and T. Lee, an early enrollee who was signed in the 2020 class, he's on campus. He'll be partaking in spring ball. Edward Woods, a guy who they signed who won't be here till the summer. And then KJ Jarrell, who played on scout team a majority of last year. So probably we'll, we'll see what role he, he can carve out for himself. Evan Fields has a chance to be a draft guy. I think athletically he was uh, the fastest guy in their defense last year, according to the strength coaches measuring in the catapult. Ashari Crosswell plateaued as a sophomore. I, I really expected him to take a, a, a jump forward. Um, it's kind of odd in that I think that he should be able to be better almost playing into the boundary, but he struggled with it. Maybe just the visuals of it and seeing it as cleanly as he does from the field side. Um, he, he's a ball hawk, but he's a ball hawk to me more of a zone player than he is somebody who's really adept at handling the man coverage man coverage even though the ASU coaches liked him in that way I, I and he's for safety he's fine he's, he's not a corner type of a mobility guy from a coverage standpoint so I'm curious to see kind of if he's able to take that next step because I really did think that he was going to be a high high level NFL draft pick physically he has all those tools Cam Phillips um, definitely at times was their best Ranger safety last year on the field in his first major season of action. That was pretty impressive to see. And gosh, Willie Hartz has really great feet. Kind of reminds me of Demarius Randall in some respects. Just, you know, really uh, just started to get an understanding of playing college football at this level and also needs to get bigger and stronger. He probably was 165, 170 pounds last year. Kiwan Markham. Great athlete, very similar to his brother in that respect. He's a little bit leaner and lighter. They're, those guys' understanding of the game, it, it, it really has the ability to improve by leaps and bounds and needs to happen for mm -hmm. them moving into this year. Um, and I'm interested to see what's going to happen with the backup uh, Tillman safety position. They're going to utilize that Tillman safety as a hybrid linebacker at times. I'm, I'm very confident when they go to some 5-2 looks, Against some of these teams, maybe they'll be in some four-three types of looks with that Tillman uh, maybe playing up and, and still having five other five defensive backs on the field, um, and some nickel situations like when they play air raid types of teams. So I'm I'm curious to see what that's going to look like. But 
overall, it's a, it's a wealth of talent in their defensive backfield. They've done a really great job recruiting. And they have, like, everybody of significance back except for Kobe Williams, right? So they're in a pretty good uh, situation there overall as long as they can get guys playing to their capability. All right, and then last position group actually is special teams. Chris, uh, obviously Christensen Deas coming back. Brandon Rui, Brandon Reese, excuse me, not coming back. Uh, what do you make of that group overall? Well, Zendejas did a pretty good job for being thrust into the action. He's got to get stronger. People will remember that he was very accurate from around 40 yards and in. Longer kicks, you know, he didn't necessarily have the range of some previous recent ASU kickers. So I'm interested to see if he can squeeze out maybe five to ten more yards of range with consistency without having a drop-off in his accuracy. Uh, but he's going to be the guy. I, I think the biggest loss by far, of course, is Michael Turk, unanticipated that he was going to go to the NFL draft with two more seasons of college eligibility left on the table. And the, the, he has like one of the best legs I've ever seen in, in Pac-12 football, not just like ASU football. Like in recent history, he has one of the best legs in the conference. Uh, so you're not going to replace that. My understanding is ASU is looking at potential blue shirts to bring in as grad transfers to handle one year because they have a, a redshirt freshman in Jack Luckhurst who's thin and kind of wiry, but he also has a big leg and they're trying to get a lot more strength and kind of develop him from a technical standpoint uh, as a bridge to getting to maybe him being able to take over or them, if not viewing that as the possibility, signing a, a high school guy maybe in the next class. So I don't know who that's going to be, but I just keep hearing that there's a good chance they're going to add a blue shirt there. Um, and then the return game is kind of a question mark. Brandon Ayuk was a, they've had great guys of their kickoff returners and even Nikhil Harry opportunities as a punt returner. But uh, who's going to, who's going to step in and show that they have the decision-making and the skills to handle that role. I think there's guys that can do it, but nobody's really demonstrated it between uh, Jordan Porter, Ashari Crosswell, Chase Lucas right. as kickoff return possibilities um, I thought Brandon Pierce like has a lot of the attributes of a, of a punt returner, but didn't really uh, demonstrate it in any kind of a way. So I think that's pretty wide open. And uh, but they 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 have more athletes, so they should be able to get somebody to be able to do it. All right. Well, that's going to conclude um, this podcast. Although we do want to make a note that there's a sort of mini media day next week, or excuse me, this Thursday uh, for for ASU football. Practice starting on Monday. We'll have tons of coverage, uh, position previews, articles that are going to be on our site in the coming days. So make sure you're checking all that out. But right now for publisher Chris Cartman and reporters Mason Kern, Trevor Booth, and Jacob Rudner, I'm your host Rob Warner saying so long and thank you for tuning in. Akuna Batata.